Shivani, we bout to party, we bout to party, unrestricted, got the house now, we gon' turn it up, up, bring the house down, got that big space pump and make them bounce now, flossing like they bossing and the freaks are coming out now. This is AEW Unrestricted, uh, we are the official podcast of All Elite Wrestling, Tony Shivani and Aubrey Everts, what's up Aubrey? Hello, hello, hello. It's early over here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I know. You know how you prevent that. Uh, yeah, you move away. Yeah, that's right. Uh, screw you, buddy. How's Atlanta? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are very happy to have with us truly one of the uh, one of the guys that makes things work for us backstage. And, and one of the, it's a well-worn term, one of the hardest working men in show business. It's Alex Marvez. Alex, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm just happy I didn't get bumped for Danhausen, to be honest with you. And I mean, absolutely, it's like, you know, I was figuring I was going to get the late Thursday night email, maybe Friday morning. Like, can we reschedule? You know, because I'm, honestly, I was scheduled to be on this podcast on April 13th, 2020 in St. Louis. Right. However, a couple of things happened, you know, pandemic, et cetera. And then we signed Danhausen. And, you know, I'm just figuring out I'm out. But no, so I'm here. I'm thrilled to be with you guys. Thank you so much, Tony. Thanks for the kind words, man. You speak about work ethic. You are, I mean, we all wear so many different hats at AEW, right? We all do so many different things. And I think it's because of the passion that we have for the company. I mean, and a lot of us assume jobs that we didn't necessarily think we would be doing when we first came to AEW. And I'm sure we'll talk about that along the way. Alex, as you probably know, if you're uh, passionate about the NFL, has uh, his uh, show on their Sirius XM NFL radio late hits. And I know it's got to be hard to juggle those jobs because sometimes you, because of the your NFL commitment, you, you can't come to TV. So I'm sure it's a difficult time juggling those things. Uh, it, it heartbro- I'm heartbroken every January, right? In February, in a good way. Yeah. Because, I mean, listen, I'm blessed. I've done the NFL for 27 years. I've never had to have like a, quote, real job where I have to go into an office and it's nine to five and you don't feel like you're ever going to advance or something like that. But on the flip side, there are sacrifices that have to be made. You don't have a regular Christmas. You don't have a regular New Year's. You don't do a lot of things that other people do, but that's show business, right? It's what we signed up for. But yeah, it requires balancing. Fortunately, I have a lexicon of history with the NFL. And since I've been with AEW since even before the start of it, to a certain extent, I've been able to monitor everything that goes on. So I keep records. I try to remember everything as much as I can, but totally, it's a challenge. But again, it's, it's passion. I, I mean, when I grew up, I mean, first, I wanted to be Tony Shabani and Gordon Soley. Second, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, to be honest, you know, NFL and pro wrestling. I mean, those were the two, my two passions as a kid. And to be able to make a living out of it, uh, it's been a dream come true. So speaking of NFL, you and Tony Khan go way, way back. When, when did you first meet the Khan family? So that's interesting because Tony Khan, from what he told me, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he read me growing up. I had one of the first pro wrestling columns nationally syndicated uh, back starting in 1989. And back then, this was a very unique thing. We didn't have an internet. Uh, we just had these, these newspaper clips, right? And sometimes it would run in newspapers around the country. And then the internet started and the columns started getting put on AOL and things like that. And people would read the column. So back at about 2012, I think it was, Bill Polian and I are doing a, a Jaguars training camp show in Jacksonville. And Tony Khan introduces himself. And says, hey, man, I've been reading you forever. And we got into a great conversation about it. 
And then through the years, I would see him at different NFL events, and we built up a level of trust. Look, a person in my position, I guess I should be milking every source that I can for news, <laughs> but I never felt that way with Tony because he was honestly so nice, so candid, and I didn't want to ruin that. So we built a level of trust, began to hang out socially. It's pretty funny when you look back at that New Japan show, the first one run in Long Beach uh, on July 4th weekend, he told me, you fly out, I'll take care of the tickets. So I did. I stayed at his place. I introduced him to Jim Ross on that trip. You know, and then he told me, ultimately, I'm starting a pro wrestling company. I want you to come work for me. And I was like, wow, I can't say no to that offer. And here we are right now talking all about it on the AEW podcast. Yeah. So you you knew about AEW long before it launched, obviously. Talk about your vantage from your vantage point, watching it all come together and what that was like. Tony, I'll be honest. I didn't tell my mom until the morning of the rally when I was driving to Jacksonville because I really couldn't believe this was happening. Wow. Quite honestly. <laughs> really, so many things had to come into place, you know, for AEW to get started. Contracts had to expire. You know, we had to feel like we could sign top talent and, and get them to trust in Tony and his vision. And it was tooth and nail. I mean, we didn't have a TV deal. You know, I should say Tony didn't have a TV deal, but AEW didn't have a TV deal nailed down for a while and he's negotiating, you know, with different networks. And it was just a crazy, crazy experience that was going on. But ultimately, once January 8th happened, once the fireworks went off outside the stadium and, and you know, uh, it was like, yes, this is actually real. Now there's a pro wrestling company. What's it going to be? And it's been so fast. I was thinking about this this morning before coming on about how AEW continues to morph itself. It's like you had a baby and then the baby's growing. But what is it growing into? I mean, Will Hobbs says his son is going to be between six foot 10 and seven foot one by the time that he is done growing. So I want to tell you, I feel like AEW is like Will Powerhouse Hobbs' son, you know, because it just continues to expand. But who could have thought that when we first began, how quickly the popularity of AEW would be? And, and honestly, too, how natural Tony Khan is at booking a wrestling show. He listens to fans. He knows what people want, and he listens to other ideas from people. He's not stubborn about it. If someone comes to him and it's a great idea and he didn't think of it, there's no ego there. He's Let's roll with it, to be honest. So I think that's one of the things as well. We try to be as fan-friendly as possible. And listen, it breaks his heart when we have to change a match. I've been out with him three, four, five in the morning, and he's like going nuts because Pac couldn't wrestle for some reason, you know, and, and we have we have visa issues or something like that. He doesn't really want to steer the fans wrong because ultimately through this whole process, he has remained a fan. And I think that's one of the great things that makes AEW work so well. It's interesting because I think a couple times when we have recorded our pay-per-view preview episodes, Tony will show up and he's like, okay, uh, we have to change the card real quick. And we have to change it now because this episode's coming out Thursday. So hold on. And then he vanishes, sends off like 12 text messages, come back. Okay, I think I know it. Uh, I need to retime the show. Like he's constantly working. <laughs> and I don't think people actually realize it. Like you could be out having a good time at like a club somewhere and then he'll come up like, hey, I have an idea for a match next week. It's like, what the hell, man? Do you ever turn we, it off? We tracked down Dante Martin at 2.30 in the morning to come to a taping. His brother, Darius, who I cannot wait to see back in the ring, by the way, and I think he's going to be fantastic. He drove 30 minutes across town in Minneapolis to wake up Dante and say, Dante, we need you at a taping. Please come in because Tony had an idea and he did it, of course. Matt's happened with Matt Seidel before. It just it happens. And sometimes Tony will get word from medical. This person tested positive for COVID or this situation. He's not medically cleared or she's not medically cleared for an injury. And then suddenly weeks and maybe even months of planning of where things may be going, 
get thrown out the window and he has to adjust on the fly. But this is the, the benefit of having such a deep roster and so many talented people that there are ways to elevate others. But, you know, we'll, we'll eventually get to where Tony wants to go with the story. But the whole thing is that it may take a couple swerves that none of us expected along the way because of unseen circumstances. We'll eventually get to your day-to-day and what you end up doing at AEW, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. But I kind of want to start with the 2019 Double or Nothing. You were part of the broadcast team with Jim Ross and Excalibur. Talk a little bit about the extensive prep that you have to go through for something like that. Like It's the first big show for AEW. Many of these talent, people who watch wrestling on television have never seen. What was that experience like for you? It was horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. <laughs> Because I had never done play-by-play, and Tony Khan asked me to do play-by-play. And I'm not going to say no to this opportunity. Listen, I tried as best I could under the circumstances. I was waking up at 5 a.m. every morning, watching as much wrestling as I could. I took as many notes as I could about finishing moves, et cetera, because there's an absence in my life because I'm not going to watch the other product that's run by the people there. So I just didn't watch wrestling for a while, and Tony dragged me back in. About 2014, 2015, so I was familiar with the New Japan product, but not as familiar with some other things that were going on. Plus, Jim Ross, Excalibur, and I had never called a match together. We went to Atlanta. We had a, a you know, we did some matches. We tried to, to work on things, but quite honestly, it, we needed more time, I think, as a trio if it was going to work out. And listen, too, I just want to give credit to Tony Schiavone because he was available, thank God. And he has elevated our programming so much. I mean, he's the voice of different generations of of pro wrestling. And it's fantastic to have him on board. Maybe in some ways he saved me. I don't know. Uh, But the reality is that that was it was rough because I also didn't realize, too, you know, how much volume you need when you call a match. Jericho is a little over the top, maybe for some, but I get it. And he was actually, you know, a person who offered me advice about what it was that he wanted to see from me more energy. And it wasn't that I didn't have energy. It's just, you know, Excalibur, boom, when he came out of the gates in that battle royal, and I'm trying to do too much in a battle royal, it's a very difficult first match to start. And then I'm swimming in deep water, you know, and then JR comes out and, and we're rolling on this show. And I mean, halfway through, I'm thinking, man, am I really in the right place? I'll be honest with you. And then social media, they were really nice to me. You know, there's just so many wonderful people on social media uh, that had commentary as well. And so the whole thing was was a learning experience. I do feel a lot better about how I did at Fight for the Fallen on July 13th of 2019. And, you know, that was a, was a good run. But quite honestly, we couldn't have a better announced team. You know, the people that we have in place with Excalibur, Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone leading the way on Dynamite. I mean, what, what's better than that? And I'm so happy for those guys to have that. I, would I love to try it again someday? Sure. But I would also need to practice, to be quite honest with you. And I would probably need to stop doing my NFL job because it is so difficult for me to try to prepare to do something that is completely different and I've never done and not be able to dedicate 100% of my time to doing so. I appreciate all your kind words. And when I uh, when I had my interview with Tony Khan about coming to AEW, I immediately talked to him. I said, listen, I Alex is one of the great guys and one of the hardworking guys, and I don't want to come in and bump him out of anything. He said, well, I haven't really decided what I want you to do yet. So, and I said, okay, so I signed, but I, and of course, Alex and I, you and I talked about yeah. that. There's nothing personal for me. I mean, you're Tony Schiavone, dude. Yeah. I mean, listen, well. seriously, and you add so much to what it is that we do. So like, it was cool. It really was. And I'm proud. I'm a proud person and I have succeeded, I think in so many different ways. And when I don't succeed at something the way I want to succeed, does it gnaw at you a little bit? Absolutely. And it is something that I would love again, maybe at some point in my life, you know, to be able to have another swing at, but I would need to put myself in that position to do so. You know what I mean? And and to really practice, but 
how do I make up for, you know, 20 years of experience of Excalibur? How do I make up Tony Schiavone? I mean, you were calling, you know, matches in the early 1980s. I mean, JR, I mean, we're talking, you know, him in the business now, what, 45 years? Sure. That's just tough to catch up on. But for the, for the whole of the company, I, I didn't like say, okay, I quit. I'm done. No, I want to be part of this. Let me know what I can do to contribute or make up your own role in a way to contribute, which is what I ended up doing working backstage because my contract doesn't say any of these things. I was never asked to produce the things that I do right now. I just did them because I want to help AEW succeed. I want to help my friend Tony Khan succeed. And that's really all that, that matters to me. If the company does well, I take so much pride in that. And that's really what it comes down to. Here is what you do. And I think we kind of touch on this basically uh, on our broadcast. But And that's why I said one of the hardest working men in show business, because Alex, we cannot do our job as announcers without the work that you do for us backstage and the the notes that that you do because you sit in front of your computer all day, all day and provide us with the notes that we probably should take notes ourselves and probably should have a lot of mental notes, but it's such a great tool for us as announcers to have the notes that you provide and they're pretty in depth. No, thank you. And you know, and it comes down to Tony too. Tony Khan cares about records, right? You know, it's important for him. He cares about the rankings and if he cares, I care. And we care about the history of this company. So what I basically try to provide for those who, who've never, you know, you wouldn't see the notes, a wrestler's background, height, weight, years experience, record, ranking. Uh, you know, if they're on a winning streak, I provide that. If they've wrestled the, the the opponent before and if, you know, their one loss record, if it's something that can be used in a constructive way, I'll list that. I'll sometimes put a reminder about where, where things may be going as far as a storyline goes. And I just want it so that, you know, while you guys call the action, if there's ever a lull or something you want to use, uh, you know, to buttress your point, you can look down on a sheet and see it. And, and that's it. And, and Aubrey, I do have the referee's name at the bottom of, of every sheet. I always wait to get it. We, we never leave the referee's blank, but just in case, you know, we can't recognize somebody, but we do that by and large. But but that's what, what it is that I do. And I also work, uh, you know, Denise Midkiff is another unsung hero, oh. I think, at AEW Wrestling. And when I say another, I'm not trying to take credit. She is an unsung hero, period. And what she does is she provides one of her jobs, all the information on the bottom. And I suggested this to Tony a while ago when we did the cryons at the bottom. Let's have a top liner that puts something cool about a wrestler, some sort of background fact. This week, you know, MJF, he has won 83% of his singles matches. I'll throw that one out there or uh, someone hasn't ever been pinned or submitted or something to try to augment what it is that the wrestler is doing, because again, they care up top, you know, Tony Khan does about having this. So, but I double check all the records. We have a database that I work on with Excalibur, Chris Marr, uh, you know, he does some things, uh, you know, as well backstage. So we have record databases and we try to make sure everything is legit as possible as far as wins, losses and, and winning streaks and things like that. We're on AEW Unrestricted, talking to the amazing Alex Marvez, a little bit about his role at AEW, how he came to be a part of our wonderful family. Coming up, we're going to talk about a little bit more about his fun interviews and randomly appearing and getting super kicked and all that fun stuff. This is AEW Unrestricted, Tony and Aubrey talking to the wonderful and amazing Alex Marvez. We talked a little bit about your backstage role, putting together notes, making everyone else shine in what they do on screen. Uh, one of the hardest workers backstage at AEW. A lot of people who do know you know you as more of like a on-camera guy. You've done some really fun interviews. You've been super kicked in the face by the Young Bucks. You've shown up randomly at golf courses to interview Kenny. You did a non-interview with Adam Cole most recently. 
I think my favorite part is like the running joke that you just kind of like apparate out of nowhere. <laughs> You're just like suddenly there. <laughs> so what's it like to do backstage interviews with AEW talent and sort of how does how do those all come together? Well, that I have a little bit of experience at. You know, in another life, I worked for FS1 when the network launched. I made the transition from internet NFL reporter to doing some on-screen work. And so at the end of games, you know, your players are coming off the field. You'll get a quick interview with them. I do interviews on my SiriusXM NFL radio show. So that that wasn't as tough a transition. But the key, though, is every second matters on television. And I can tell you, in our production meetings, to just share a little something, if Tony Khan can save eight seconds, that eight seconds is so valuable because it can go towards something else. Because sometimes a segment may run long. And maybe we want it to run long. Maybe there's an interview that's scheduled to last 90 seconds. But it's so good, we don't want to cut. 30 seconds of it. Well, where does the 30 seconds come from? So all of this is, is very closely timed. As you notice, we don't have overruns. We're willing to, if there's a match that's still going on, championship match and, and no time limit, okay, we could push the boundaries there, but we are required to be off the air at a certain time. So it just makes it important. So I think that one of the quick things was be less verbose, get quickly to the point. The other thing is that while I want to have some fun with it, I'm very serious about it. I do not want to overshadow any talent. Reality is people do not tune in outside of my mom, who still has every dynamite on DVR. Uh, I want to say that this is not something involving me. I'm not trying to put myself over. I want to put over the talent. I want to put over AEW. I want to get the message across of whatever it is that we're trying to get to. So, you know, sometimes I'll talk with the talent. I mean, sometimes, you know, when I'm interviewing Chris Jericho, I don't even know what's going to happen until about 10 seconds before. And then he'll say something because that's CJ. That's just how he operates. Chris Jericho would much rather do something live than he would pre-tape. It's just how he functions, how he operates. He is still, I don't want to say a bit old school in that regard, but, you know, and I just try to be patient too. There's some, some wrestlers who aren't comfortable yet doing interviews. They're still trying to work on it. You know, try to be encouraging, try to offer tips, you know, try to tell them just different things. And, and you know, and I think they appreciate that. So, and it is fun to pop up from place to place, but that's what, what sleazy NFL reporters do, right? I mean, I've staked out the NFL commissioner's office looking for Ricky Williams. I have staked out people at, a, at the NFL labor negotiations when they had a lockout. I found out that if you stand outside in Washington, D.C. in 20 degree weather all day, you need good shoes. Being a Miami kid, I had no idea that the cold comes through your feet. I found out the hard way. This is what we do in the NFL sometimes to try to break news. So it translates a bit to, to AEW. And I love when I can just pop up out of nowhere and get that interview and shock whoever it is that I'm going to be talking to. How did you know that I'm here? What do you want? Get away from me. Alex, you mentioned you're from uh, Miami. And of course, uh, you're, uh, you grew up watching championship wrestling from Florida at age six with your dad. Talk about the impact that had on your life. Humongous. Yeah, obviously, you're still in the business, so it had a big impact. You know, I always tell kids, if you ever have a chance to see pro wrestling live, it, it will leave such an impression upon you that you will probably never turn back. And my dad, God bless his soul, on a Wednesday night would take me to the Miami Beach Convention Center. And I will never forget the night that Joe LaDuke dropped Sweet Brown Sugar on a guardrail in front of me. And we would get front row. He would always send me to the ticket window. And the lady was very nice. We would spend $10 for ringside seats at the time, up and get front row. I I mean, right there, when I saw that, and my dad getting up to protect us, you know, from that, or the time I had to hold my dad back from running in the ring to attack Don Morocco, because he had, (laughs) you know, an assault on Dusty Rhodes. I mean, we took this seriously. My parents knew that if I was not in front of a television set at noon on Saturday, watching Channel 6 and Championship Wrestling from Florida, it was going to be a bad day for them. 
when my dad would go to the gun range on Saturdays, he would ask the guy behind the counter if he could turn it on channel six and let me sit there and watch wrestling from 12 to one. We would go to department stores. I would sit in the department store. I would watch the TVs that they were selling there. This is back again in the day. And I would have to watch championship wrestling from Florida because there was no DVR, VHS, no other way to watch it. I called the television station once. Man, Mr. Florida got blinded by the Super Destroyer. They threw a cigar in his eye. Is he okay? Guy tells me, eh, watch next week. You'll find out. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the calls like that. So it was just such a passion to get involved in pro wrestling. I began working at the Miami Herald at junior in high school. You know, I graduated from high school that summer. They knew what a big pro wrestling fan I was. And they said, hey, listen, we did a reader survey. They want, you know, people want to read about pro wrestling. Well, I had gotten smartened up to the Wrestling Observer, my first edition, March 2nd of 1987. I was at a show, one of the last championship wrestling from Florida shows at the Miami Beach Convention Center of all places. And a fan told me about it. It was a night that Bruiser Brody and the original Sheik went through the crowd fighting. It was absolutely crazy. So I subscribed to this thing. I send $6 for four issues. Big deal for high school Alex Marvez, right? And I get it. And I'm like, oh my God, what is this world? This is what's going to happen on TV. These are these wrestlers' real names. What, what is this? My, my whole world has changed. Wait, there's wrestling in Japan? There's wrestling in Calgary? There's wrestling in Oregon? Oh my God. Like, so it just expanded. I started trading tapes all across the country, started calling in results to Dave whenever there was a show in South Florida. Then I get this opportunity and I basically tried to emulate the wrestling observer in my column. And Tony, as you know, TBS back in the day, it would be part of the media packet stuff. It's how Keith Mitchell knew who I was. I, I wrote about how Jim Coronet said black roses. Uh, to Jim Hurd, right. after letting go of Rick Flair and said, congratulations on the death of your promotion. I did all that stuff back in the day, and that led to my foray into wrestling. I remember back in the day, someone told me, I don't know, once, uh, there's this guy down in, in Miami, in Florida, that writes on wrestling and really hates you. <laughs> and I said, who is that? They said, this Alex Marvez guy. I said, okay, well, then he's just like my wife. So <laughs> Lois and I talk, we share, we trade notes. It's, just, it's how it is, you know, just trying to make your life miserable. Yeah. So wrestling got you working, right? In, uh... It kept me going. You know, I was covering other sports. I covered the University of Florida, you know, when I went to school there, go Gators, Tony, for three years. Okay. Spurger was there. I know, don't, don't joke. Um, you know, but then I branched out. I was, again, I appreciate everything at the Miami Herald because I fast tracked my way up. I was covering the Miami Heat for a season back in 94, 95 before they got good. I moved to Dayton, Ohio to cover the Cincinnati Bengals, my first NFL job in 95. But I was insistent at the DDN, you need to let me do my wrestling column. And by the way, the Miami Herald made it a weekly column. It was originally bi-weekly, but it was so popular it went up because people wanted to read this stuff. Right. It's funny. Sam Hemingway, our security guard, Security Sam, he read me back in the day, the Dayton Daily News. Shane, also part of our security team, he read me back in the day at the Dayton Daily News. So I did that. And when I moved to cover the Broncos in 1997, same thing. I need to have the wrestling column. So Zane Bresloff, God bless his soul, the greatest promoter that I've ever seen. Uh, he was a big part of it back then, Wow, you know, at WCW. And, you know, I was able to work with Zane on some things and events and just kept the column going. And it ended up branching off rather than me critiquing as much. You know, I started getting interviews because I had built up some cachet. So I basically interviewed so many people in our company. I go back 20 years sometimes to call up old interviews. Some of them have been lost to time. A script Howard got bought. So I don't exist basically on the internet because of it, but there's some things that are out there. I, I joke with Matt Hardy, I interviewed him in 2004. You know, it, it's just, it's wild to me. And now I met Sting when I was 18 years old, interviewing him at the James L. Knight Center. And then sure enough, July 7th this year, where are we? At the James L. Knight Center with Sting. It all comes full circle. It, it's absolutely insane what my life is. 
So just for context to put a timeline on it, you started working for the Miami Herald in 1989 and you ended the column in 2012. Yes. That's a very long run and you should be extremely proud of that. So great job there. I appreciate it. I wish I would have just still loved wrestling the way that I did before. I was starting to do what's called hate watching, which you see a lot on the internet. And, and, you know, it was, uh, it was Bubba Ray Dudley who pointed it out to me, yeah. uh, not, not to me, but on, on, you know, busted open on Sirius XM that people are wa- sometimes watch the product to hate it. They just sit there and they're just going to be negative about everything. You know, and I, I got to thinking about it, like, is this how I want to live my life? Is this how I want to spend my time tearing other people down. And now I see it. This whole thing has changed my life in a lot of ways too. Because as a media person, you are paid to critique and you tear down others a lot of times and and you judge their performances. And it's like almost watching this this weird, vicious cycle that's going on right now with AEW and the contracts of wrestlers and the obsession of, is this person coming back? Are they not coming back? They should fire this person. They should hire this person. You do realize that this person may have a family or they may have a life. And I'm sorry you don't like watching them on TV and they're not your cup of tea. But for you to say something like that is so cruel and inhumane. It's awful. So I've seen it now so differently, actually being that person who is on the other side of the curtain. Again, it's been a life-changing experience. But yeah, back in 2012, I was done. I I just thought there's only one product available. It wasn't for me. I'm never going to give them a single dollar. I'm never going to support anything that they do because of the inhumane that they they have treated so many people for so many years. As much as I love wrestling, I need to take a break. And like I say, it was Tony Khan who brought me back. He said, Listen, I know you don't watch, but New Japan is really good. And the first match I saw back was uh, Shinsuke Nakamura against Tanahashi. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is really good. Like, and, and Nakamura is just charisma, just exploding through my TV on access. And I began watching that in it and it lured me back in. And I legitimately hated the Young Bucks. I did. They, they were so good. <laughs> they were just little scrawny pieces of crap who were just like so irritating and annoying. And they elicited that out of me. So, it really got the, the passion going again. And of course, obviously, AEW, I, I am all in, so to speak, or maybe I should say all out through a copyright. But that, that's my another story for another day. We're talking with Alex Marvez. Fan questions for Alex Marvez on deck on Unrestricted. AEW Unrestricted, Tony and Aubrey here talking with Alex Marvez. We've talked a lot about his background in wrestling, how he fell out of wrestling and came back because Tony Khan is an amazing, wonderful human being. And now we're here at third segment, our fan questions. This first question is definitely one that I had. I think I joked on Twitter, like, I have this question too. Donut Shop asks, how does Alex teleport so quickly backstage from interview to interview? Well, it's quick. I mean, you have to be able to to have some sort of transportation like Nightcrawler of the X-Men. <laughs> uh, you know, Christopher Daniels, of course, always wearing a, some sort of comic book T-shirt. So he'll have an X-Men shirt right there. But yeah, I mean, that's how it is. You know, you have to be able to hustle. That's it. You got to get the scoop. Plus, you need to have sources. Maybe there'll be someone who's a stooge and they'll tell me where somebody is backstage and, and I'll go ahead and I'll camp out. I'll take our crew over to get ready. Just Palumbo screaming at me. I mean, we'll be good to go. You know, a lot of the time. Palumbo screaming at everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, five, four, uh, you know, so that's how it is. I mean, you, you got to be on the go from head to toe. Everybody quiet. We're doing an interview. Stop. <laughs> I'll hear that in my dreams. My gosh. Well, <laughs> you need you need to do more of those backstage interviews. More. <laughs> Okay, so Steve 8K, Steve 8K wants to know from Twitter, what is the scariest interview that Alex has ever done? You know, Brody Lee scared the living crap out of me. Oh, yeah. He really did. And I know he's a wonderful man. 
And I got to know him a very little bit before his passing, obviously. And But honestly, the presence that he had was horrifying to me. We did something uh, where I was interviewing Colt Cabana, and he showed up, and I just look up, and I'm like, oh, man. You know, legit. By the way, too, you'll laugh at this, but I think you'll understand. Uh, Chris Jericho, absolutely terrifying. Absolutely. Ter- I am so scared of screwing up anything involving Chris because he is such a perfectionist. And also, he's like legitimately, he doesn't hold back. Let's right. just put it like that. The man fought Goldberg, okay? So I remember one time I'd been, and I don't want to say, la- I, you could call it lazy with the microphone. We're doing it was at the uh, at All Out in 2020. And I let the microphone go down. And unfortunately, Daryl, our producer, was out of my sight range. And he's trying to tell me to lift up the microphone. And so I'm sort of, I don't say I'm lollygagging. It's 100 degrees. We're dying that day. And he says, Marvez, pick up the microphone. Like, he just yells at it. Pick up the mic. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, did I screw this up? Am I ever going to be on again, basically, by doing something like that? When I wrote Chris's book, you know, with, with Pete Fornitale, and, and, you know, Chris did so much of the work, but I had to data entry. 2,722 matches. I cannot begin to tell you the horror that I had and the fact that I didn't breathe a sigh of relief until months after when I realized I only missed one match out of 2,722. I don't know if I would have been as meticulous at doing this with anyone else but Chris Jericho because the last thing I wanted to do was screw up Chris Jericho's book. That's the type of gravitas that Chris Jericho has. So Brody Lee, Chris Jericho, right at the top of my list. And uh, John Moxley, by the way, too, intimidating to say the least and by the way read mox what a book i just finished it and i cannot tell you enough you, i learned things about pro wrestling i didn't know I, I learned so much about john moxley things that i didn't know i'm so happy that he's back i'm so happy that he's healthy and in a great place he makes our company better and i learned so much about him from reading that book what an incredible book heck it got my wrestling observer book of the year vote instead of my own that'll tell you how good that book was it's a, I'm going to back up the Chris Jericho claim because he's very particular about how he wants things done. I've learned this over the years and there's still that certain element of terrifying, even though I'm like, okay, Chris and I are really good friends at this point. Oh God, no, he really wants this this way. So yeah. I respect you a lot on that front. Yeah, there's that line. There, there's friendship, there's respect, and there's business. And he wants it done his way. Do it his way and everything's fine. It's part of the reason why he's so good at what he does. He has a particular way of doing things. Marcus McCurdy on Twitter, kind of going back to your your promos with Joey Janela. What is your thought on the the big mommy milkers and and, and that whole thing? Big mommy milkers, one of our stops for for Joey Janela and I. And uh, I really enjoyed working with Joey. I think Joey is is such a genius at at pro wrestling. And he's a visionary when it comes to looking ahead and seeing things in the future, recognizing young talent, but also the work that he does a lot of times in in other wrestling companies, you know, with veteran talent. And he's obviously a great performer. It's funny too, because there's some people that you realize were born to do this, right? John Moxley was born to do pro wrestling. Cody Rhodes was was born to do pro wrestling. I just try to shut up around these guys by and large and listen to learn. It's the same thing with Joey Janela. I always wonder too, with Joey, if we didn't have the pandemic and he was able to wrestle in front of a crowd more, how things may be different for him in AEW, to be quite honest. And he has talked about that, you know, with me backstage as well. I'm not breaking any confidence here, but he has told me, I need an audience. This is the way that Joey Janela wrestles. So, you know, at the time, we're in a pandemic. We're still not wrestling in front of full crowds. And uh, Joey and and Sonny Kiss are going their separate ways. And, you know, I like to have a good time on the road quite a bit. Joey (laughs) likes to have a good time on the road quite a bit. It all panned out. You're you're, you're part of the late night crew. I've seen you. (laughs) Part part of the lads and then the crew, yes. The lads. uh, 
you know, so it's, it's what we do and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I get to relive high school every week. Let's just put it like that and make up for all the mistakes that I made back at Coral Park in Miami. But so all that though was, so it was a really neat deal with, with Joey and Sonny. And then it sort of got sidetracked for a little bit, unfortunately, because Joey ended up, you know, having some bumps and bruises and ended up coming back. So now Joey is, is gone his separate way with Kayla Rossi. But to have that memory with Joey, I think it really helped. It showed people a different side of me. It, it was really a lot of fun to, to have a summer of doing that. Unfortunately, we will not have the photo tour of Big Mommy Milkers. We're going to leave that. Uh, we'll leave that between us, but we'll just have the memories. That's what I can tell you. And a lot fewer dollar bills. Back up here uh, at Francisco Ortiz wants to know, how did you and Chris Jericho first meet? I had interviewed Chris. And in fact, Chris may know this or may not, but back, uh, unfortunately, after the Chris Benoit situation, I had had Chris's number because I wrote about Fozzie. And how, you know, back when he was doing, you know, releasing his first Fozzie album, there's an Alex Marvez column that was out there. I forwarded some of that information to Nancy Grace and the Nancy Grace show had Chris on to talk about everything that had happened. So I was familiar with him. But the way I wrote the book was we were in Corpus Christi, Texas. It was December 18th of 2019. And I came up with him with a fact because he was wrestling Jungle Boy that night. And that was a match that went to a 10 minute draw, helped elevate Jungle Boy to, to heights now with the most AEW victories. Chris Jericho lifting people up around him. What a shock, right? And I went to him and I said, Chris, you were wrestling your 758th match on the day that Jungle Boy was born. And he said, how do you know? I said, what do you mean? He goes, I have kept a journal of every single match that I have wrestled. And I found this fascinating. We end up late that night going out, you know, say, actually we're in the hotel lobby until about 5 a.m. and hearing, uh, you know, Joey Janela and Chris Jericho trade Teddy Hart impressions uh, for a couple hours. And I just could not stop laughing. My ribs were just so sore the next morning. But as long the way, I'm like, you know, Chris had approached me about maybe doing something with this. We kept revisiting it. And, and that's when we, end, we ended up doing the book. And, and Pete Pornatale had worked as an editor uh, with Chris through the years, you know, on, on Chris's other, you know, best-selling novels. So it became a natural fit. We had to gather pictures. We were not going to ask the other company for permission to use photos. Tony Khan's so gracious, letting us have the AEW database to be able to, to call photos. But Chris had his own collection of photos. And it became something different than what we started. Initially, I just wanted to do this as a favor to Chris and put in all his matches as a thank you for everything that he's done in pro wrestling. First, I realized this was an awfully big task because especially when it came to all his work in Mexico. He worked so many different wrestlers in Mexico. It wasn't just a cut and paste, like I'm working a program with someone and, you know, boom, every match is going to be the same, right? No, this one were eight-man tags, uh, six-man tags, different opponents every night, and making sure all the spellings were correct as well. For all of, Like, for example, in the cities in Canada, I found out what the PAS was, P-A-S. You know, different places I, I'd never hear in my life, but I had to double-check all of the spellings, double-check the names of the wrestlers, things like that. Then I started telling Chris, we can do some more with this. And like, hey, why don't we get wrestler testimonials? Why don't people weigh in on what they thought of wrestling this particular match with Chris Jericho? What's your memory of this match? And then we can do top 10 lists. We can do, hey, Chris Jericho's favorite merchandise. Who's his favorite opponent? Uh, what were the matches that he hated? Who are his best tag team partners? Who's the referees he liked to work with? All of those things ended up going into the book, and it took on a life of its own. We self-published the complete list of Jericho, available, Jericho30.com, as I slide in that shameless plug. But that's how the, the relationship began. And, you know, he knows if he ever needs a fact or figure, he can text me, and I'm going to help CJ out. I'm going to hit you with one final question here, Alex, uh, and this is from Dr. Scott Kelly, uh, and I'll do a follow-up on this. Uh, given Alex's other job, which I pop for every time I hear him on Sirius XM Radio, can Alex give Aubrey any hope for the Seahawks and Russ? There's no hope for the Seahawks. I'm not a Seahawks fan. Oof. Just because I live here doesn't mean us. But anyone who names themselves Mr. Unlimited, like they can go screw themselves. <laughs> <laughs> 
Seahawks got some issues right now. Pete Carroll maybe entering his final year as coach. We don't know if Russell Wilson's going to want to remain with that team. Yeah. You know, and, and an amazing fall from Grace's here. I think when we look at the NFL's most disappointing team, to me it was the Seattle Seahawks and Miami Dolphins ranked in a close second. But 100%. You know, just weird to see the Seahawks not even in playoff contention come December. Alex, thank you very much, buddy. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Okay, you can uh, follow Alex on Instagram and Twitter at Alex Marvez. You can hear him on Late Hits on Sirius XM NFL Radio. You can listen and follow this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, AEW Unrestricted for free, or the video episode on YouTube. Just do a search, AEW Unrestricted. And Aubrey. And we're all over the place. Mondays and Tuesdays, you can find us on YouTube, on Dark Elevation and Dark Respectively. You can find us on TBS Dynamite every Wednesday, 8 o'clock, 7 central. And on TNT, Fridays for Rampage at 10 o'clock, 9 central. Thank you for listening to AEW Unrestricted. Come on, throw your hands up. Let me see you. Unrestricted.